considering this is the second episode of the day, I'm just going to say welcome to EFS 11, Ancient Flight. We dive back into the book to explore ancient flight and the records of UAPs, UFOs, general flight models, details. Get a lot into the Vimana in this one, which was pretty interesting. A lot of stuff I haven't heard of before and from that side of things. So it was very cool. Always love sitting down doing the book. Thought I owed you guys a couple of episodes this week. So here you go. Enjoy EFS 11 Ancient Flight. Remember we're on Patreon, Unlocking the Code. If you want to send some support our way, that'd be excellent. Facebook, Instagram. I am delving back into Twitter. So if you want to give me a follow there, I'm, I'm trying to make time to do at least one post a day there. That'd be cool. Remember to give us a review, five stars. It does help. I know it's a pain, however, it does help. Please look after yourselves. Stay safe. Be kind. Be cool. Be disciplined. And we'll talk soon. Cheers. We went from spitting jam stuff, 50 fans in a little cramped room. My shoebox, he couldn't fit a shoe in the tour. And Switzerland with my man in the minivan, being the man of the minicam. Happening in the minivan. I've seen bodies that I trust in a way. Cause money can't buy your love, but it can earn your hate. And none of you came from fuck to the movement. We're large. Now every crew is making music. Every dude is goodbye. Now every half hour's bar fly up in the bar once. You said about spitting about the dark and the hard times. On the fighting for the crowds and the such. When we encountered in the pal who had been down on his lap It's the volleys pushing trolleys eating soup from the tent My girls are golly man, these polys ain't improving a thing We'll swap your warriors for some volleys, swap your soup for some wings So fly with us, we light it up and it's a beautiful day Try to tell me over time we'd be forgotten, rotten Thinking that you're gonna keep me boxed in, nonsense Hilltop and class rock till you're noggin' nod And you can walk in my shoes but never fit in my jeans I do this with no option till my body's old and rotten And exhausted, keep it going cause I'm living my dream When it comes to picture painting We might be the illustrated with the visuals illustrated That's still communication, therapy for life without the rehabilitation Keep waiting, I'm about to blow up Signpost to find that which lies below Born in 88, so I came in late To find for the first time in life I felt right at home Through the growing pains and hostile takeovers People trying to put us down like Beethoven We stayed strong and remained focused Till they had no other choice but to stand up and take notice Never thought what I wrote on the page back in the day Would ever have me catching a plane or wrapping up on a stage Staring out at the crowd in amazement Thinking back on the days when we were confined to the limitations of the basement The sub to raining and kids became the main event I pay respect to those who spent days laying foundations Countdown to detonation
might <sighs> direct, launch directly after Jackal's review. Just so yeah. everybody understands. If everyone wants an intro to this episode, we did a whole episode. We called, did a whole episode called and Jackal's cut it review. off and we called it Jackal's <laughs> Review instead. Because that's just where crazy things take you that's when right. you're in the refinery. So we're going to just jump straight back into the book, man. EFS 11. EFS 11, we're taking flight tonight. Yes. Uh, I'll take the con, mate, if you like. Jump straight in, brother. Chapter 7. The case for ancient flight. Obviously something close to our hearts, considering you know me, you, and five other blokes spent a percentage of time trying to manifest a UFO in the middle of nowhere the other week. So, you know, we are, we're, in, we're, we're invested, and that's why we're still here. The case for ancient flight. The acceptance of the existence of an ancient civilization is fast becoming an issue that is no longer open for debate as the evidence of its existence and technological achievements, at least in the fields of masonry and building, is quite apparent. Furthering this, the question has also often been asked whether these people of ancient times were able to travel through the skies in aircraft like we do today. Before you scoff at the notion of this, I ask you to first consider a few things. The first thing to consider is that there are actually a good deal of passages in past records and ancient texts that do in fact mention flight and the machines that we use for it. That's true. Also consider that there is enough of this written evidence existing in vastly different cultures to suggest that sometime in our distant past, an age of aviation did indeed occur, and at a much earlier time in our history than we ever could have thought possible. A consistent and ever-growing bulk of this documentary evidence quite openly states that the secrets of powered flight were very well known to many nations at a time that is now well before our recorded history. These reports are not limited either and can be found in the ancient records, religious texts, mythology and artefacts from a wide variety of cultures. There is an ancient Indian book called the Vyamana Nika Shastra, for example, which contains passages that read more like flight manuals than the religious texts. It's also one of those ones that's actually like a rocket. There's a, there's, there's a, there's a rocket design in one of those ancient mm-hmm. texts as well. Uh, even going into great detail to explain the various metals that should be used in the construction of the craft where they could be located and how to smelt them. Other passages describe many controls and functions for the craft and detailed techniques used for manoeuvring the machines in different types of weather and wind strengths. Even the clothing to be worn by the pilots is described in detail. Local legends of the Greeks, Colombians and Egyptians also speak of flying craft. Even the Polynesian islands in the South Pacific have legends that talk of a fair-skinned people who once arrived from the west aboard shining boats that flew above the sea. Other islands of the Pacific also have extremely similar legends of flying canoes that brought people from far-off places. The true history of flight may actually encompass far more and a great deal longer broader and longer and broader we ever could have even imagined in our wildest dreams. He's got me. I love Max. I'll keep going. I'm in. The story of Icarus and Daedalus. One of the earliest stories of flight is undoubtedly the epic Greek tale of Icarus and Daedalus by the Roman Roman poet. Yeah, I'm in and then make a mistake. Roman poet Ovid. <laughs> As with many other stories concerning the fantastic deeds of the gods, the ancient Roman tale is seen almost exclusively in terms of an adventurous and colourful myth. However, a closer look at this ancient poem can reveal a good deal more to us. In the story recounted by Ovid in his work Metamorphoses, Ovid describes Daedalus as a, being a highly skilled and talented architect who was the actual designer of the infamous Cretan maze, the enormous circular underground maze that was built at the request of King Minos to trap and imprison the legendary Minotaur. That's the, the labyrinth. When his labors, Perseus? Yeah. Perseus and the Minotaur? Yeah, it could have been. Not too sure. Uh, when his labours were done and the maze was complete, Daedalus became restless and longed for his homeland again, but knew that the tyrant King Minos would block his return and that the only way by sea would surely be close to him. So instead of sailing, he decided to build himself a flying machine. The king may block my way by land or across the ocean, but the sky surely is open, and that is how we shall go. According to Ovid's epic, he then set his mind to sciences never explored before, and altered the laws of nature. Ovid tells us that Daedalus, Daedalus constructed two flying craft, one for himself and the other for his son, Icarus. 
In his account, Ovid does not state whether the craft were powered in any way or perhaps had been some kind of glider, possibly even a type of hang glider. It is reasonable to assume that such a craft would have been powered in some way in order for Daedalus to feel confident he would be able to transverse an ocean. Ovid does, however, tell us that before their departure, Daedalus went to great pains to ensure his own son Icarus was well instructed on the rudiments of flight and the capabilities of his craft, and even then kept a watchful eye over him once they were in the air. Ovid tells that the sight of these two flying machines also created a considerable amount of excitement among spectators on the ground who happened to witness the event. Some fisherman perhaps plying with his quivering rod, some shepherd leaning on his staff or a peasant bent over his plough handle, caught sight of them as they flew past and stood stock still in astonishment, believing that these creatures who could fly through the air must be gods. There's always an, uh, the gods can fly as well. That's another one of those things that echoes again and again and again. Definitely. The two craft headed out from Crete across the Aegean Sea, but the poem tells us, for Icarus, the wonder of flying was an incredibly exhilarating experience, and he became so excited by the thrill of it that he eventually flew out of earshot of his father and soon forgot all about his instructions. Icarus soared ever further skywards until the wax his father had used to bind the wings of his craft together began to melt from the heat of the sun. His craft soon fell to pieces, and he fell and was swallowed up by the deep, in the deep blue waters which are now called after him. Today, the legend of Icarus and Daedalus is viewed entirely as an interesting poetic myth, yet it could easily be factual testimony of an event that may have really occurred in the history of early aviation. This is hinted at because by way of comparison, it is quite an unusual story in that it is not magical exploit like the many other ancient myths. In fact, quite an earthly tale containing within the narrative some very conceivable and quite plausible human accomplishments. There is also the fact that Daedalus is described as a master architect, who was already known to have constructed great things such as the maze. This entirely makes it in, this also makes it entirely plausible that such a man may well have conceived a way to fashion some type of aircraft, considering that today practically anyone with two brain cells working in unison can, can assemble a hang rider from a car boot. Fair enough, I suppose. Good point. Yeah. Uh, plus there is a fact that Daedalus was so concerned for the safety of his son and realised there were limitations to the capabilities of the craft and seemed to be very aware of its shortcomings. This is, a very diff- this is very different to the exploits described in other mythological tales. All of these points then credence to the ancient tale and its possible authenticity as a factual account of early aviation. Allow me to step in here, my friend. Take it away, sir. Take it away. Babylon. Possibly the very earliest existing record to mention aviation, even preceding many Indian texts, is an ancient set of Babylonian laws named the Halkatha. The Halkatha contains but a single passage which unmistakably reads, to operate a flying machine is a great privilege. Knowledge of flying is most ancient, a gift of the gods and old for saving lives. Another similar Babylonian text called the Epic of Etana, which is thought to be derived from an earlier Sumerian tale, contains reference to the magical flight of Atana on the back of a huge eagle throughout the story as Atana is continually taken ever ever higher there are numerous and remarkably accurate may I please have the mouse good man thank you sir accurate descriptions of the view that unfolds below the thing is is that the tale reads like a genuine account of someone who is very familiar with flying. It is difficult to conceive of how the author could have imagined the details that are mentioned throughout the narrative. There are detailed descriptions of a patchwork of colour, mentions of atmospheric haze, and accurate description of geographical features that would be very hard for someone to describe unless they had actually experienced flight. Or, I'm just going to say, possibly climbing a tall mountain you might be able to get some of the similar sort of effects in terms of seeing things from above down onto a Yeah, like that's true. You can see agricultural fields. Mm. Yeah, I'm not 100% sold on that that statement, no. but yeah, because there are other ways to you get, could to get that sort of, yeah. 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 But anyway, I like the idea. Geographically, that would be someone to describe unless they had actually experienced flight. So who could have made 
and recorded these types of accurate observations in an ancient text that was written somewhere prior to 2400 BC. In his book, Secrets of the Lost Races, Rene Norbergen made the following remark about the tale. Whatever the vehicle of ascent may have been, the Epic of Etana certainly supplies us with a very accurate description of the Earth's surface from various altitudes. Descriptions which were not verified in our own era until the high-altitude aerial flights of the 1950s and the first space shots of the 1960s. So I feel like they're, they're pertaining to something a little bit more than what you could possibly achieve just yeah, climbing rockets any or, old yeah, said mountain. Right. Yeah. You know, you might be starting to look at curvature of the earth there mm. if you, you're talking about high altitude flights in the 50s mm. and, yeah, space shots. Mm. So I could be a little bit wrong with what they were describing. Maybe. In the same book, Norbergen also mentions a 5,000-year-old Chaldean, Chaldean, Chaldean. Yeah, Chaldean, Chaldean. Let's stick with Chal for now. Chaldean manuscript called the Sifrala, which is believed to actually contain a detailed account of how to build an aircraft. The passage was found by somewhat surprised archaeologists while deciphering the text who was amazed to find passages on the subject of flight and mentions of such things as vibrating spheres, graphite rods, and copper coils, and contains comments on wind resistance, gliding, and stability. Unfortunately, many key lines of the text are missing, making an attempt at learning the complete method for reconstructing the craft now virtually impossible. Ain't it just always the way? <laughs> well said, Maxi boy. Uh, China. I like how China's very short. Well, this is the... <laughs> don't we always don't yeah. we always say that? it's the ongoing thing? Yeah, there's nothing. So no one knows. The whole title is China, and the whole thing is two paragraphs. Two maybe. paragraphs long. China is perhaps the most mysterious of the ancient developed civilizations anywhere on Earth. Though this mystery is mainly because the occasional Chinese ruler had decided that history should start with them and subsequently set about erasing any records preceding their reign. Fortunately, some ancient texts still managed to survive these ravages, although nothing from extreme antiquity. Among them are numerous references to experimental aircraft. Some of these texts have been dated as being written sometime prior to 2000 BC. One such text mentions the Emperor Cheng Tang ordered the construction of a flying machine in 1766 BC. The report tells us that the craft was then subsequently destroyed for fear of anyone else discovering the secret of flight. The same text states that much later in the 3rd century BC, a Chinese poet called Chun Yu made a detailed aerial survey of the Gobi Desert. In these passages... Did I... Chu Yun? Chu Yun, yeah. Wow. I said Chun Yu. Chu Yun even lavishes enormous praise to the fine construction of his craft and speaks of the great durability it displayed during several wild desert wind and sandstorms that he encountered during his flight. You'd almost say, is, it a, is, that, is he describing an airship? You know what I mean? Or something like that? Could be, yeah. Because if he's encountering sandstorms and the like, mm, he may not have a lot of speed. Of, or altitude. Or well. altitude. Yeah. So, yeah, he has to sort of buffet through these things instead mm. of being able to go around them go or over, over them. them. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that was that was it. That Thank was you, it. China. No worries. India enters the conversation. Mm. More than most countries, India is a place that has particularly rich and detailed tradition of ancient flying machines throughout their history and mythologies. There are numerous stanzas in the Ramayana. Many mentions of such machi- machines are also made in the epic wars that are described in the Wow, thank you. Mahabah 
rata, and some extraordinary lengthy passages referring them in another ancient book called the Vimanika Shastra. Mm. Oh, India, you continue. There is another ancient collection of sacred Hindu books called the Samaranga Sutra Dara that contain at least 200 passages concerning almost every conceivable aspect of flying. And the amazing descriptions of the narrative abundantly demonstrate that the authors of the work had a very detailed knowledge of aviation, mechanics and equipment that comes very close to what we know today. Author and self-taught archaeologist David Hatcher Childress has written some excellent books discussing these texts, and I highly recommend anyone with an interest in the topic to obtain and read them see sources at the close of this book mm, we'll definitely be looking we'll at have that. a look at that mm. these texts call the ancient flying machines vimana which is the one we all know isn't it that's the that's the one mm. they describe the craft craft as having carefully welded joints and as being powered by controlled fire from the iron containers that were like the roar of a lion that would set the vimana in motion so that the traveler sitting inside the Vimana may travel in the air to such a distance as to look like a pearl in the sky. Mm. This description sounds remarkably like modern jet powered planes, even very adequately describing the noise that they make. One chapter describes a complicated process for smelting and refining mica, telling us that the process will yield a metal shining like a precious stone, very light, unbreakable, unburnable, and indestructible. In fact, the entire Vimanika Shastra reads more like a flight school manual than mythology. It's hard to imagine any reason for including such things in religious texts, for they tell no story, convey no message, and have no moral meaning. They only serve to describe the technical details of flying craft and their related topics. Well, I mean, you, yeah, you're going to have manuals, aren't you? That's the operations manual. 100%. It's a pilot's manual. Here, yeah. Read this. Yeah. yeah. Or it's how that end, it, like it's how you just like describe it for the common person that's who right. doesn't fly. That's right. Sort of thing. Here's Gives a book them, you can read. Yeah. It'll tell tells you, you everything that's in it. They need to know. Yeah, yeah exactly. As an example, both in the Vimanika Shastra and in a book called the Yantra Savasva, Vimana are described as being of three classes, those that travel from place to place, those that travel from country to country, and those that travel from planet to planet. That's exactly what we have. Yeah, that's right. The texts are also greatly concerned with military vimana, according, recording them as having special requirements, which they state quite categorically. According to these ancient texts, such military craft need to be impregnable, unbreakable, non-combustible, indestructible, capable of coming to a dead stop in the blink of an eye, invisible to enemies, able to listen to the conversations and sounds of hostile Vimanas, able to see and record things, persons, incidents, and situations inside hostile Vimanas, able to know the directions and movements of other Vimana in the area at all times, capable of rendering the crew of a hostile Vimana into a state of suspended animation, mental stupor, or complete unconsciousness. Wow. Capable of destruction. Manned by pilots and travelers who can easily adapt themselves to the climates and environments through which they be moved. Temperature regulated inside. Constructed of light heat absorbent metals. Equipped with mechanisms to enlarge or reduce images and enhance or diminish sounds. Now, not to completely ignore the fact that what has just been described to us sounds like some sort of cross between a stealth fighter and a UFO. It seems safe to assume 
from these texts that the ancient Indians actually had some pretty advanced knowledge about certain technologies. There is very little doubt that many of these tales are quite authentic. Many of them come from the great Indian epics themselves, and there are quite literally hundreds of them and still many more. In fact, probably most of them. They haven't yet been translated from their original Sanskrit. It's the same as their Sumerian stuff, man. Like they just came across that tablet that they said that they fled the planet. Yep. You know, I think I think I was talking to Loomis about that. It's like there's 10,000 Sumerian tablets. I think we've translated 900 of them. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we haven't even scratch the surface of what those things actually even mean yeah you know and they've already rewritten geometry and well and they've been translated differently by so many different people also and that's just be the same with this as well yeah that's exactly right Mm. because of the lost information about those those old languages Mm. apart from the myriad of ancient texts and legends dealing with the subject of ancient flight there is also certain physical evidence to support the claim of its reality in bygone days Of course, we're not talking about actual ancient flying machines, as none have ever been located, nor, I imagine, ever will be. But there are some other somewhat intriguing artifacts that have been found. Would you like to take it from there, my good man? take over, mate. Step straight into Egypt, brother. Well, I think, um, yeah, I mean, at the time of recording, Jeremy Corbell went on the JRE. Uh, a couple of days ago, a few days ago now. Um, They're really describing, you know, that I'd never seen that long list of description there, you know, but that's describing the UAPs that we're seeing realistically, isn't it? 100%. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah, fascinating. Uh, Super. Egypt. A small artifact that was discovered in a tomb near Saqqara in 1898 and labelled simply as a bird object is quite interesting. It was found again years later in a basement storage area of the Cairo Museum of Antiquities. Can you just for a second imagine what is in the basement storage Mm. area of the Cairo Museum of Antiquities? Oh, yeah. Can you just... Stuff that's been forgotten, man. Everything that's been there since the 1920s, man. It's been there since the 20s. No one knows what it is. 100%. Imagine. Uh, for many years, the artifact catalogue simply as an item number 64... Oh, sorry. I thought it was going to be special then. 6347RM22A had lay in a small box, almost forgotten, and was considered to be small and mostly insignificant. But the intriguing, intriguing thing is that the artifact is actually a tiny wooden aeroplane. It was not until 1969 that an archaeologist by the name of Dr. Khalil Masiha noticed that the extraordinary resemblance to the object of a modern Delta Wing aircraft and decided the item was worth further investigation. A research committee was immediately formed, and the findings were so impressive that the object was put on immediate display in the museum. Could be a bird, man. Just saying. Could be a bird. But what are planes modelled off? True. Birds. True. It's true. It's true. Yeah. It does have an interesting shape. See how, yeah. No, I do agree. You're right. It could be a bird. Mm. But why is his tail vertical then? That's right. Because birds don't have vertical tails. Like no, they that. don't. No. A plane May, do, maybe man. a special one does, you know, but I've always seen them with flat tails. Mm. Well, I suppose that when they're turning, they're vertical. You know, some of the birds are no. prey, but. You, they would show the twist. Yeah, that's they right. They twist their, their, their tail feathers. And then, you know, and then suppose that's what they're saying. It definitely looks more like a rudder as opposed to a. No, 100%. Aerodynamic experts later testified that, in their opinion, the mole was remarkably airworthy, indicating knowledge of principles of aircraft design which had taken European and American designers a century of airfoil experimentation work to discover. So they're talking about the curvature of the wing and all that sort of stuff. That's what they're saying there. Some experts noted definite similarities between the model and recent NASA developments in oblique winged aircraft like the space shuttle design. Numerous such artifacts have now been discovered, all showing knowledge of advanced aerodynamics. And in a temple in Abydos in Egypt, there are hieroglyphs near the ceiling that look very much like modern aircraft in profile. The glyphs closely resemble a helicopter, an aeroplane, and some called a hovercraft or flying disc. I asked, um, oh, it's going to jump to Colombia. Uh, I asked uh, Muhammad about those. Yeah. Right. And he basically said that there was a, 
it's the only way that like a stucco there was another bit of stone that was over the top of those yes that was on had different hieroglyphs on it yeah and then earthquake whatever happened and that face stone fell away and revealed those hieroglyphs he's like yes they are absolutely real yeah that one that looks like the helicopter and the, the ship and that sort of stuff they are definitely real yeah we're jumping around a bit here, Max. Off to Colombia. Well, I guess he's just staying on topic with flight. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's have a look. Uh, another miniature flying machine, now simply known as the Gold Jet. I think I know which one this is. Mm-hmm. Was also discovered in Colombia in South America. The tiny gold object is considered to be well over a thousand years old and looks very much like a modern plane or space shuttle. It is thought to come from a pre-Incan culture, possibly the Toltecs or Olmecs, and measures just two inches long. The artifact has attracted considerable attention due to its extraordinary resemblance to a modern fighter plane. According to one test pilot, a Mr. Jack A. Ulrich, the shape of the wings and the tapering of the fuselage also suggest the original aircraft it was modelled from was probably a jet-powered and capable of supersonic speeds. I mean, that's a, that's a, I know what he's about to show us, and that's a long bow, man. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a long bow. Uh, critics say that the object could easily just represent a bird or a flying fish and this could very well be a possibility however it's notable that the object also depicts a triangular upright tail fin which has no equivalent in the animal kingdom and provides a strong indication that it's actually a depiction of a flying machine interestingly the miniature model even has an insignia on the tail such as can be found on today's modern fighter planes this has been likened by scholars to the second letter in hebrew alphabet the letter beth it has also been speculated that the artifact may not have originated in Colombia and even could have been Phoenician, possibly imported from somewhere in the Middle East. There are at least six other very similar artifacts that have been discovered from other locations in South America, such as Venezuela, Peru, and Costa Rica. Yeah, there's those ones there, right? Yeah. Can you see the face? Like, uh, yeah. Yes, how the bit's fallen off. Bit's fallen off. Yeah, and that's the... yeah. I think we've all seen those ones. We've all ones. seen those ones, right? There's a, there is also a huge body of evidence in the form of ancient texts that even apart from the many Indian epics, all suggesting that flight was a reality long before our modern world. It is highly unlikely that races from different parts of the earth could invent tales that are so strikingly similar in both content and time frame, or that sculptures and artists of our ancient past could randomly produce works of such aerodynamic accuracy Without first-hand knowledge on the subject, there's also to be considered the vast markings in the desert of the Nazca Plains in Peru, yep, discussed in Chapter 2, that can only be properly viewed from the air. Not, if no one was capable of flight, then why construct them? And how could the artist ever design the layout in the first place? And that's, yeah, we, we spoke about that in one of the earlier episodes, didn't we? Written records from the ancient oral traditions in Nepal also mention powered flight. These records say that the real secrets of flight were not known to all people, but only a select few called the Yavanas. Isn't that true right now? Yeah. Not everyone knows how to fly. That's right. Not everyone knows how to maintain a plane. That's right. There's only a very select few. Yeah, it's only a percentage of population that can actually do that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That are aviation mechanics yeah. and pilots. And pilots, yeah. And engineers, you know, yeah. that's the who are thought to be a light skinned people of the eastern Mediterranean region, most probably from Greece. This is a quite interesting because Greece is the, actually the country that provides us with one of the best accounts of the perils that were associated with early aviation in the tale of Icarus and Daedalus. And apart from that, if you stop to consider the motivations behind record keeping, why on earth would the scribes in Nepal go to all the trouble of acknowledging their lack of expertise? Excuse me on the subject of flight, unless someone else was already around doing it better than they could. For them to just casually mention it amongst the rest of their history makes no sense at all. And by by the way, we can't fly. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the same as our current historians bothering to record the fact that man is still incapable of turning into a tree during the 21st century. The simple fact of it being mentioned at all gives one the immediate cause for thought, in particular because it's mentioned in a fashion that would suggest a non-proficiency in the skill in comparison to others. Most traditional texts deal with the accomplishments of a civilization, not with its shortcomings. Yeah, there's the 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 issues. Let me get a drink, mate, before I continue. No problemo. I mean, not really hearing any new information. No. 
But I mean, we are pretty deep into this one. But and he's also yeah, he's skimming over. He's gleaning a lot of, um, just doing a summary really from around the world. Mm. Oh, we're going to go into. I think we're going into the Vimana. Looks like it. The remapping of prehistory. Okay, let's have a look. Let's do it, brother. Just keep punching on. Keep punching we'll on. We'll get this done. Synoptis. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Are you up to there? Yeah. Yeah? Oh, no. Yeah, here. Yeah. The amazing Vimanika Shastra. As previously mentioned, the Vimanika Shastra, Vimanika Shastra, is a remarkable work of, from ancient India. It is said to be a religious text, but if so, then it is one that seems to contain no religious or moral significance at all. There are, of course, the standard praises and recognitions of the greatness of the gods that regularly punctuates the work, but no real story as such. The work serves only to offer mankind the benefits of aeronautics. Unfortunately, the copies of this book that have survived from antiquity are incomplete, making any complete rendering of the narrative now impossible, although we do have a reasonable amount to go on. I mean, and this is the thing about this stuff. Let's pretend for a second that it is a flight manual or a pilot's manual, or a mechanic's manual, or you know what I mean? They get thrown around. You know, it's in the bottom of the bag, right? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, how many times have you read that thing? Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to survive thousands of years, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Mm. The descriptions in the text are quite technical in places and highly detailed throughout. I was going to attempt to present a summary of the work in this section. However, the subject matter is extremely vast, and the lack of any storyline makes the summarization of the book impossible. I will, though, present for you here a list of some of the various topics that are covered just in the first chapter of the book to give you an understanding of the peculiar nature of this remarkable text. The book opens with this statement. I make obeisance to the... It's getting late, bro. I make obeisance to the divine... 27 minutes to go. Keep pushing. ...who is visible on the crest of the Vedas who is the fountain of eternal bliss and whose abode is reached by the Vimanas. Having studied the Shastras propounded by previous men of science to the best of my ability for the benefit of mankind, I shall deal with the science of aeronautics, which is the essence of the Vedas, which will be a source of joy and benefit to humanity, which will facilitate comfortable travel in the sky from world to world in eight chapters consisting of 100 topics in 500 sutras. Do you want to do synopsis of chapter one, mate? Let me do it. I, this is new. I never... Go, go, gadget arms. Yes, this is new. All right. Synopsis of chapter one. Sutra one describes for us the nature of Avimana. Owing to similarity of speed with birds, it is named Vimana. The Vimana is a vehicle which flies in the sky with speed comparable with birds. That which can fly in the sky with speed equal to that of birds is called Vimana. That which can speed on earth, on water, through air, by its own power, like a bird, is a Vimana. I thought that it said through can... water then for a second. I was like... <laughs> That which can fly through air from one place to another is a Vimana. That which can fly through air from one country to another, from one island to another, and from one world to another world is a Vimana. Having thus defined for us what the word Vimana means in Sutra 2, the author proceeds to describe its details to us. The texts say that a Vimana pilot should acquaint himself thoroughly with 32 secrets of the workings of the Vimana before attempting to use the craft. Yeah. Switches and gauges. Yeah, that's and right. Shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Such things as the technical details of the craft, special maneuvers. We, we and jumped a- into a fighter pet, fighter pet, a fighter pet, fighter jet, all the buttons and stuff in there are secrets aren't they you know what i mean exactly man (laughs) they are magical that's right depending on what level of society i'm at yeah that's right such things as technical details of the craft special maneuvers and abilities it could perform how to handle the vehicle in battle situations 
and how to deal with hostile vimanas are all described in detail in this sutra. In Sutra 3, there are told, we are told of five types of atmospheric regions and the different aerial routes that a pilot needs to familiarize himself with. The regions of the sky are five. In these five atmospheric regions, there are far out. What's that? 5,000? So five. No, that's 51,000. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's, it's 519,800. Yeah. They really got me with those that, commas. Those commas are, commas are weird, aren't they? But is that in Indian numbers? This might be a different mm. thing. Because look at the other numbers. They're all weird too. 7-03-00-800. Interesting. So is that a different numerical system? Could possibly be. I'm not sure. That's weird, eh? I feel stupid right now. Yeah, because we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> I have no idea. Those commas are in weird spots. Like, I don't yeah. understand. Let's let's say 519800 airways. Yeah, there you go. Fine. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to say that. I don't know. It's confused me, those commas. Yeah. All right. Anyway, moving right along. Please, someone tell us how stupid I am because I can't work it out. No. Well, you and me both. <laughs> Sophomaniacs at their best. Exactly. All right, let's go. Transversed by Vimanas of the seven Lokas of worlds, or worlds, known as, wow, Buloka, Buvaloka, Suvaloka, Maholoka, Jan, Jan, Janoloka, Tapoloka, and Satyaloka. Rekha has... Seven zero three zero zero eight hundred air routes. Mandala has twenty comma zero eight comma zero zero two zero zero air routes. Yeah. Kakshaya has two comma zero nine comma zero zero comma three hundred air routes. Shakti has ten comma zero one. 300 air routes and Kendra has a lot of air routes. I mean, <laughs> it just, I, I, only thing that I can explain that with, cause it's baffling me trying to figure it out is it's a different numerical system as opposed to the one that we use today. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to like base 10. Yeah. Base 10. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are they, you know, what's their base? We don't know. We what don't, do the commas mean? We don't know. Don't, I don't know. Do I don't know, man. I don't know. That's weird. It's a lot. It seems to be a lot. It's. It looks like a lot. There's a lot of numbers. <laughs> it's a lot. We'll say it's a lot. It must be. Sutra four deals with the dangers of whirlpools, avatars or aerial whirlpools, are innumerable in the above regions. Of them, the whirlpools in the routes. Why did I just switch to routes? Mm. Routes of vimanas are five, in the. Rakapatha, there occurs shakt. Wow. Sorry, I'm murdering these. I know, but I'm just powering on, okay? Shaktiavata? Nice. Well said. Yeah. I, I concur. Yeah, Shaktiavata. Or whirlpool of energy. In Mandala Patha, there occurs the whirlpool of winds. In Shakshak. Shia Patha. Yeah. There, there occurs Kiranavata or whirlpool from solar rays. Wow. In Shakti Patha, there occurs Shiti <laughs> Shiti Avata. Shiti Avata. Shiti Avata. The whirlpool of cold currents. Yeah. And in Kendra Patha. Oh, God. Gasha Navatha. There you go. Thanks, bro. Or whirlpool by collision. See, that's teamwork. Whirlpool Such... by collision. What does that mean? Like spinning rocks? Yeah. I don't know, man. Such whirlpools are destructive of Vimanas and have to be guarded against. The pilot should know these five sources of danger and learn to steer clear of them safely. Sutra 5 deals with the various structural parts of the, of the Vimana. 
we are told that a vimana consists of 31 main parts, just as the human body, if it is complete in all its limbs, is best able to accomplish things. The vimana, if it is complete in all its parts, will be capable of functioning efficiently. Sutra 6 deals with the clothing required by the pilot. The clothing should be different for different seasons. A great amount of detail is given to the methods of fashionable, specific fashioning, fashionable, specific apparel, apparel the pilots were required to wear for health, safety, and psychological reasons. With this material, fashioning the apparel and clothes of the pilots handsomely, it will ward off evils, promote fitness of body and health of mind, and improve their strength, energy, and competence. With this material? Do you want me to take over, bro? No, I'm good. You good? A little bit longer, please. You're right, man. Just checking in, man. Thanks, brother. Sutra 7 deals with... I'm, I feel like I'm just coming back onto Fair the plane, no, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully. You're, you're coming back if on I the, don't, on the then by all means, take the reins. You're right, bro. Sutra 7 deals with which foods the pilot should consume on different times of the year. Food according to seasons. Sutra 8 tells of the food types required. The three varieties ward off seasonal evil effects. Sutra 9 informs us of strict meal times for the pilots, that at set times, the times for making meals are prescribed as follows. Family men should take food twice a day or once a day. Ascetics should take food once a day. Others can take food four times a day. Air pilots should take food five times a day. And yogis may take as many times as they like. So feed the pilots up. And your wife. Sutra 10 deals with vitamin supplements that may also be used. We are told that if foodstuffs prescribed above are not available for use during flights, then Mexican supplements are allowed. Mm. And the <laughs> essence extracts. I just thought I'd throw that. Essence extracts made by cooking certain foods with add mixture of spices may be dried and food balls made from them should be supplied to the pilots. Energy balls, man. Straight up for consumption during flights. Mm. Interesting. There are five kinds of food that are nutritious and wholesome. Cooked rice or grain, gruel, cooked flour, baked flatbread, and preparations made out of essence extracts from food materials. The last named are superior to all the others. Yeah, right. So they're making superfood balls or something like that. Not nice. say Mexican supplements. Yeah. Performance-enhancing drugs. Mm. Throw those essence ac- extracts into the carrier mm. that is rice or grain or mm. flour. Mm. Basically, making sandwiches. Mm. Sutra 11 continues the theme of food supplements or essence of fruits, roots, and bulbs. We are told that the preparations made from edible roots, potato, and other bulbous vegetables and from fruits are also suitable for use as food balls. There, said it. Yeah. Sutra 12 continues the supplement theme, this time speaking of herbal supplements like roots, bulbs, and fruits, grasses, shrubs, and herbs provide good food for men. Six kinds of dorva grass, six kinds of manja hemp, six kinds of darba or long grass, six kinds of shoundira, and six kinds of ashwakana or sal, or mamodika sharantia, shatamoli of three kinds, karuvulavele, Chandravele, Madhuvele, Vachuvele, Makutevele. Suganda. Oh, am I just speaking <laughs> fucking Sanskrit? And Suri. Suganda and, and Suralavele may be made of yield, may made to yield good food, nutritious and bracing. Uh, so Sorry, it is. That it's, sounded it's like more, gobbledygook for the last. It's more of a. It seems to be this. It's like a. 
it seems to be an instruction manual. It's like a pilot's manual. Man. Definitely. That's what Definitely. It seems like. like, I don't know if this is how short, like, obviously it's a summary, mm. but how short are these sutras? I'm not sure. That's what I'm, because it's very, yeah. I guess he said it was a summary, but mm. yeah, it does. There's a lot of instructions in there. Mm. Sutra 13 deals with the various metals and alloys used in the construction of Vimanas. The book tells us that there are three kinds of metals. By mixing them, 16 kinds of heat-absorbing metals are produced. Metals which are light and are suitable for producing Vimanas are 16. They are heat-absorbing and should be used in the manufacture. 16 metals formed by mixing root metals and are non-heat conductors and are useful for Vimanas. The texts also suggest a significant geological knowledge by the author. It also mentions extensive mining operations to recover the metals required for the craft and speaks of where they may be located. In the seventh, seventh layer of earth, in the third mine therein, metals of the Soma series are found. They are of 38 kinds. Among them, there are three from which heat-resisting metals are to be extracted. In the third section of the seventh layer of the earth, metals possessed of five special qualities are called root metals. There are 3,000 metal-bearing layers within the earth. Of them, 1,300 layers contain the better quality. In the seventh layer materials are of 27 types. The third type of metals are five-fold qualities and are known as root metals. Sutra 14 speaks of the methods of purifying the metal ores for use in the manufacture of various alloys. The texts speak of the different plant extracts and concentrated juices. There we go. But also concentrated juices, if we think about our different extraction processes yeah, in our and these mines, sorts of things, yeah, yeah absolutely. Our yeah. float, um, oh god, the flotation yeah, tanks yeah, and yeah. stuff yeah. like that yeah. in our separation techniques. Yeah, separation tanks and you know, using you, different compounds and stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there that you we could call them concentrated. We juices. would not call them water. Let's no, put it that that's way, because right. they are fucking toxic. They are toxic. Yeah, caustic soda and yeah, yeah, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the text speak of different plant and concentrated juices. They were applied to ores in various ways to produce different types of lightweight metals. This section explains the processes involved for some of them. That's yours, mate. You take that last section. Yeah. Round us out, buddy. Bring us home. So I think that's it, man. I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we end the chapter. Yeah, we're on to the next, on to chapter yeah, eight. That's good. That. We got through a chapter. That's good. That's all flight. Mm. I, I need to listen back to this one. The above descriptions are merely a summary of the first chapter of the Viman Vimanika Shastra. There are still seven more that continue along this same theme with extraordinary detail. I could go on, but I think you get the point. It's a flight manual. The topics dealt with this ancient Indian book are extraordinary and it is virtually the same wherever you go in the world. If you look for them, it seems that all countries have ancient legends and long-standing traditions of prehistoric flight. Whatever the other truths of our history are, the reality is that ancient knowledge of flying machines was a worldwide phenomenon. To many people, the existence of texts such as these coupled with the widespread nature and enormous bulk of the other evidences previously mentioned constitutes proof enough that the only possible conclusion that can be reached from it is that all from it all is that thousands of years ago some form of ancient civilization possessed the knowledge of aviation actually did exist and the flight was quite well known quite well known about by many cultures others have said but if such indeed the case and if, if such is in blah, 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 such is indeed the case an ancient man knew of light flight fuck and now it's nearly over. Then, sorry. Stay with us, sorry, guys. We're sorry, getting there. Sorry. Sorry. You're right, mate. Then where are the remains of the ancient flying machines? There'd be no remains of any such craft that have ever been found at archaeological sites. Well, that doesn't seem to be true if you believe Bob. If they ever had existed, surely we should have found some traces of them by now. The answer to that is simple. 
well, I mean, as I say, you listen to Corbell and what Bob says, one of these ancient crafts that they were working on did come from an archaeological dig. They didn't say where, however. Yeah, but what's the chances of us seeing it? Mm. That would really affect the paradigm. Yeah. So, yeah. Apparently it exists. It would be, yeah. They, you know, it'd be hidden. Yeah. If there was an ancient civilization that was destroyed in either a devastating war or a natural cataclysm, all traces of them would in fact be gone by now. That's the other thing too. Metal would have degraded, right? Every piece of metal, every nut and bolt would have rusted to dust and every piece of concrete decayed. Not one trace would remain unless it was a massive monument of stone or an item that had been covered by earth or rock and preserved by time. No, only objects such as the megalithic structures we still find, perhaps, or perhaps a depiction of the event painted on a stele by one of the few survivors or objects like Upart's mentioned in the second chapter, would have survived for us to find, which indeed they have. That's how it will always be. And if our civilization was wiped out today and another grew up many thousands of years from the fragmented scattered pockets of survivors, what would be left on earth of our civilization 20,000, 50,000, 100,000, or even a million years from now? to show that people of that time were ever here? The answer, of course, is nothing, apart from story, apart from maybe the pyramids, apart from, you know, the same Mount Rushmore, same thing, right? Mm. Nothing would remain of our civilization except legends and possibly some small artifacts that escaped and remained buried somehow. Perhaps a fossilized footprint or a painting of one of the survivors had drawn on the wall of a cave he'd found to shelter in for the winter. And then as the survivors grew into a civilization, again became as modern man, Imagine their mirth at the laughable notion that men have flown or even walked across the earth in time that is 100,000 or 200,000 years before their civilization. But why have we found none of these ancient flying machines? They would ask. And that is it, dude. That is it for tonight. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen. I don't have much to say about that. I think I want to re-listen. We might revisit that before we do the next one because I want to listen to that again. There was a heap of technical detail there that I want to rethink. Mm. However, I'm good. I'm good. No, that was a that was a good chapter. That was an interesting chapter. Oh, I really and, enjoyed it. And we punched through that chapter, and that's good. That's a nice and tidy thing. Good to be back, man. It's Thank great you, to be as back. Always. Awesome listeners, awesome people. Uh, I'm probably going to release these two at the same time, Jackals and this one. So do people, it. So people have got a, a choice. Do it. Uh, I think that's a good idea. So enjoy that one. Plenty of stuff. We're back. It's all good. Look after yourselves. Stay safe. Be kind. Be cool. And we'll talk soon. In this life and the next. Peace. Cheers. Do you just want to go again? Let's do it. Yeah. Go again. All right. I know you've been here before. No surprises settle the score. I know the darkness deep inside. Reckless rage.